As we continue our series this morning, He Gets Us. We open again to our thematic passage in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As we've been going through this series, we've been looking at the narratives of Jesus' life and the Gospels to see exactly how this high priest, how this Jesus, who we know as the Son of God, can sympathize with us in our greatest weaknesses. That is, ultimately, to recognize that He, too, was human, and in his humanity experienced life as we experience life wrought with all of its hardships. We've explored ways in which we saw Jesus go through anxiety as he faced death and crucifixion upon the cross. We witnessed his struggles in life and in love. We've seen so many times over and over and over again through this series how Jesus has experienced what we experience. And in doing so, he understands us. He gets us And because of that, he draws near to us. But today we take a turn towards something that maybe is a little bit more difficult for us to wrestle with, for us to understand, for us to comprehend when it comes to something that Jesus himself faced that maybe we don't necessarily face. It's in Matthew chapter 8, 18 through 20, that we are going to focus our time today. And so if you, have, if you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and open them. You can also find a pew Bible as well. But this is going to be Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 20. And I want us to really think about what it is that we see in Jesus' own life today. Starting in verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And and a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, I ask that you would come and 
open our eyes today to what it is that this passage has to say to us. What is, what is it really speaking to us in this place? God, I pray that by the work of your Holy Spirit, our eyes and our ears would be open and our hearts would be ready to receive what it is that you are speaking clearly and plainly. But even more so, I pray that you would get me out of the way so that you can be made manifest and be made known more and more. Because even if as I stand here, I, I don't know how to approach this passage. What it's teaching. How it's teaching us. Other than I know that the Spirit of the Lord has convicted me to preach it. And that it brings great conviction to my own soul. Lord, we love you. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Truth be told, I don't really know where to begin this message today. As I was thinking about it and thinking about it and realizing what it was that the Lord was calling me to preach, I struggled more and more and more to come up with a way in which to share this passage that would be relatable. That would be understandable, not just to you, but to myself. If you've seen in the bulletin, the focus of today is financial hardship. Financial struggle. And to be honest, I think it, I could very easily say, sure, I've struggled financially. I've had financial burdens in my life. There haven't been, uh, there have been many times where I've had to ask my mom for a little bit of money to get me through a week, through a month, with promises to pay her back. I've faced some financial burdens and struggles in my life. But the more I think about it, the more I realize I cannot even compare the financial burdens that I have had with those of those that have significantly less than me. Even more so, I can't compare the financial struggles I've had with the financial poverty that even Jesus found himself in. And so that's why I struggle to bring this message today because honestly I can't speak about it from a place of true experience, of really knowing what it means to be in poverty. Even more so, I, this strikes me so much and it, and it strikes me hard because we have to understand what it is that Jesus is talking about. If for no other reason than we see Jesus in our own lives become manifest and real in a way by which we have never seen before. What I mean by that is just the other week, a member in our church asked me a question about the decline of the church. Why, why members are becoming fewer and fewer in the world. And I had to pause for a second. I had to remind them that that's actually not the case. That's not true. In fact, 
Christianity is on the rise in the world, not on the decline. We just don't see it on the rise in the West. We don't see it on the rise in Europe and in North America. But if you look to Asia and Africa and the Middle East, faith in Jesus is booming. In fact, there was one statistic that came out that every day, something around 5,000 people or more in China are coming to faith in Christ Jesus. 5,000 a day. And it's probably higher than that. And then they ask, well, what accounts for that? It can be summed up really Quite simply, in the West, we have too much money. We are wealthy beyond compare to the rest of the world. We have when so much of the world has not. And in us having, we don't need Jesus the way that those that have not We don't look to him the way that those who have not, who have little. We don't need to rely on God to be our miracle. Like those in China, in Africa, in the Middle East. To those small communities that are bursting with faith. Because they have little, and we have much. Even those of us that would consider ourselves in financial burden and struggle still have more than they do. I promise this isn't supposed to be a depressing message. (laughs) But I want us to consider that, and I want us to consider that as we look at our passage today. And I'm actually going to do this a little bit backwards. This one, this passage is way shorter than most of the passage we, passages we've been looking at. But in a different way, I'm also going to start with our last verse when I usually walk through the passage verse by verse. So I want us to start with verse 20 because verse 20 is what puts us in the context of of what it is that Jesus understands, of what Jesus himself is going through. And so in verse 20 we read, And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Quite simply, Jesus' response to the scribe in the context of this passage is to describe that he himself is in complete and abject poverty. He has essentially nothing to his name. Not even a place that he could call home. A place where the phrase says he has nowhere to lay his head. Quite literally, the way that this is written in the Greek, the understanding of it is that this is a, literally means that there is not a single place that Jesus owns or has access to that he could consider a permanent place of residence because he simply could not afford it. He had 
nowhere to lay his head. Nowhere to call home. He had nothing to his name. Now, the simple argument that we might push back against in our hearts, as I did myself, was, well, he was an itinerant preacher. He, he went around. He, of course, he didn't have a place to call home. He was constantly moving from city to city and place to place to preach the gospel in the kingdom of heaven. Of course, there was no place that he would call his home. But there were many itinerant preachers in that day, many that were going from city to city, but all of them certainly had a place where they could go home to, a place where they could lay down their head and say, this is where I live, this is where my family is. But it was not the case with Jesus. He had no place. But even more than that, before he said that he has nowhere to lay his home, he prefaced it by saying, Foxes have foxholes and birds have their nests. They have the humblest abodes. Animals have what even the Son of Man does not have. He's trying to demonstrate to the scribe that he is the poor of the poor. He is the poor of the poor. He has nothing to his name. Even the foxes and the birds have more than he does. And we can actually see this reiterated throughout the gospel testimonies. One of my favorites actually comes from John chapter 1, 45 and 46. Jesus had first found Philip and called Philip to follow him. And then Philip goes out to find his friend Nathaniel. And the passage says, says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So essentially what Philip was saying to Nathanael was, We found the Messiah. We found the one that, that the prophets have been speaking of. We, are, we have found him. Philip, come. Or Nathanael, you have to come. You have to see. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. To which Nathanael says... Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. Well, we have to understand in that, in that response of Nathaniel is that his response is not unfounded. Because the reality, reality is what good can come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was a poor, small, obscure town that nobody knew about, nobody wanted to go to, nobody wanted to put on their maps. It was a community of the poorest of the poor. So what good could come out of Nazareth? Certainly not the Messiah of God was going to come out of a poor, obscure, nothing town. And even more so, what we know about Nathaniel is that he came from Cana, which was another town in Galilee, just as Nazareth was in Galilee. And Galileans don't turn on their own. They don't like the Judeans. But they don't turn on other Galileans. But they turn on Nazarenes. Because it was nothing. It was nothing. Jesus was so poor, he came out of a town that didn't even exist. 
And then again in Luke 2, 22 through 24, we read about the time that Jesus is to be dedicated at the temple. And it says, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of two turtle doves or two young pigeons. What's fascinating about this passage is that the offering described is two turtle doves or two pigeons because that's what Mary and Joseph had to bring to the temple in order to make sacrifice to dedicate Jesus to the Lord. But what's shocking is that in Leviticus 12.8, that's actually the substitute offering when you're too poor to make a proper offering. The proper offering is that one is supposed to bring a lamb to make sacrifice for your firstborn. And yet they couldn't even bring that. And so they brought two pigeons, two rats with wings, in order to dedicate Jesus because it's all they had. So if there's one above all who understands poverty, who understands financial burden, who understands financial struggle, It's Jesus. He emptied himself, not just of his divine dwelling place, but from every material possession that he could possibly have. He gave up. The next thing we see in our verse, our chapter today, is I want us to go back to the beginning now, where it says, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. I want us to focus in on the crowds. Who were the crowds that followed Jesus? Very simple. The everyday and the ordinary. Not leaders or elites. Though they might have come to see who might be taking all of their recognition from them. But they definitely didn't come to receive what it was that Jesus offered No, Jesus came for the lowest and the poorest, for the everyday and the underwhelmed, for the marginalized and the ostracized and the outcast. The text tells us in chapter 7, 28 and 29, that the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The text reveals really two primary things in saying not as their scribes. The first and most obvious is that Jesus was nothing like their religious elite. Nothing like the well-educated and the ones that gave themselves to temple worship and understanding everything that was written in the law. And so they were astonished that one such as he could teach with such precision and authority to preach not as one of those, those scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, 
but the second, and maybe the less obvious, but goes right to what we were speaking today, they were making a statement about his socioeconomic status. Jesus was not in the same economic status as those elites. He was humble and of lowly means. And so it astonished them that someone that looked like them could speak like them, but could teach something completely new and with such great authority. You see, Jesus did teach and preach to them in a language they understood because he spoke Aramaic, the language of the people, not the language of the religious elite. And he looked like them. He, he came in his tunic and his cloak. He wasn't in some fancy and expensive robes and regalia. He didn't have the vestments of the priestly class or the wealth of the Pharisees and the scribes. No, he came wearing commoner's clothing. He was literally like them in every way, poor, impoverished, and in financial difficulty. So, of course, they saw him. These are the same people that at the feeding of the 5,000, they didn't even have food to feed themselves. And so Jesus, with his own lot of 12, which only had five loaves and two fish to feed them, which wouldn't have been enough, was able to take that and feed 5,000 because he had compassion for them, because he loved them. The people that Jesus came for were the people like him, poor, impoverished, and in financial difficulty. The last thing that happened as we come back to our own text, our passage today is right before that, Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and then it says that he begins to come down from the mountain in verse 1 of chapter 8. And when he came down from the mountain, the great crowds, they followed him. And behold, as they were following him, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, can you make me clean? And with every eye upon him and watching, wondering, look, these were the, the crowds that were with him were already poor and marginalized and now the poorest of the poor and the most marginalized of the marginalized shows up at his feet and asks him, will you make me clean? And Jesus, in his heart of hearts, because of his great compassion, understanding and knowing, says to the leper, stretches out his hand and touches him, which he wouldn't have been allowed to do, says, I will be clean and immediately his leprosy was cleansed Jesus's heart for himself is to go after to have compassion on the one who has nothing who has little who like him 
has no material means or a place to lay his head. And so Jesus is looking for the one that says, if you will. And Jesus is responding, I will. The heart of Christ is towards those who have not. In fact, we are reminded in His Sermon on the Mount, in His Beatitudes, the very first line He says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Because the poor have so little, those that come to know Jesus in their poverty know that He is of infinite worth. And this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. The reason we see Christianity booming in these other countries where they have not is because they understand the infinite worth and value in Christ their King. That they don't care about the material things. They have to fully rely on Him. That leads us to the last part of our passage today. The scribe. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. After seeing and hearing all that Jesus has been doing, from listening to his sermon on the mount, and then watching him cleanse the leper, and then heal the centurion's servant from afar, recognizing the authority that Jesus had among the people, how could the scribe not want to follow him? He's amazed and astonished just as much as the crowd around him. And instead of Jesus' words are absolutely come and follow me, Jesus says this instead. It was his response of poverty. I live in poverty. Are you willing to be impoverished in order to follow me? That was the call that Jesus made to describe. And to be honest, I hear that and I tremble. Because those might be some of the most difficult words in all of Scripture for us that live in the place that we do. But even more so, there's a parable that he tells in Matthew chapter 19, 16 through 24, and behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your mother and your father, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All these I have kept. What What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That, at least for me, is a harsh reality check. I know financial struggle, but I don't know poverty. 
Quite frankly, I know what it is to be rich and not to be poor. And so I hear those words and I wonder where is hope? But the disciples had the same question, praise God. And Jesus responded to them. With man, not all things are possible, but with God, all things are possible. It is possible for the poorest of the poor to experience Jesus in a real way. And it is possible for us who have great financial wealth to also experience Jesus in a real way. So what does this mean for us? Well, first, I want to say this. Yes, we are wealthy, but I still want to acknowledge and recognize that there are people that struggle financially among us, that struggle in our church, that struggle in our neighborhoods, and that struggle in our community. And we need to acknowledge, though we may be wealthier than the rest of the world, there are still those around us that struggle with their finances, that struggle to to feed themselves and feed their families, to keep the lights on, they struggle. And that is something that we must acknowledge and say to them, you are not as alone as you think. In fact, as we look to the future right now, it looks like times are going to get harder and harder, that financial burden is going to get greater and greater. But in the midst of our struggle, we have to be willing to understand the words of Philip to Nathaniel. When Nathaniel asked what good can come out of Nazareth, Philip said, come and see. Come and see Jesus. Come and see the one who, though he has gone through much, experienced much, is from the poorest of the poor, he is of much value and much worth, more than anything else that you could ever possess. There is a Messiah who came and lived the life of poverty that he may greatly understand your difficulty and in your time of struggle. But I also want to say this, that he is not coming so that you can come to him and reap financial benefit. Jesus, in fact, is all about the opposite. For those that are in financial struggle, you come to him because he is of infinite worth, not because he is going to give you financial freedom and success. We come to Jesus because he wants to draw near to us in our poverty, even if that means he doesn't help us out of it. Our financial burdens provoke us to go to him, And he shows us who he truly is. The second thing I want to say is for those of us that are financially stable and financially able, a great burden has been placed on us. And the question we have to ask is, how are we living out of our wealth to help those who are financially burdened? I'm reminded and convicted myself of Acts chapter 2, 44 through 45, which talks about the early church. And it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What does it look like for us to surround those in our churches and communities that have less than us? 
How do we look after and care for those that cannot look after or care for themselves and their families? How do we come alongside them, support them, and help them in ways when they simply can't? And I only say that not as something to convict you, but something for you to be prayerful about. How is God calling you specifically to help in this time of need for people around you? Each person and family has to pray about that themselves. In fact, someone recently told me, and I love this, that sometimes we just have to give until it hurts. Only then might we be able to sympathize and understand what it meant when Jesus laid the burden of abundance upon us. We have been blessed that we may be a blessing. I want to wrap up with one final thought that goes out to both parties, those that have and those that have little. Everything must be in submission to Jesus. There is one thing that Jesus spoke about more than anything else. That was money. And he made it very clear in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can be rich or you can be poor and have a love for money. It is evidenced through those who hold too tightly to money for the rich and those that squander money too easily when they receive it when they are poor. Both are love of money. God does not call us to irresponsibility. He calls us to responsibility, to financial responsibility. Yes, we need to give until it hurts. We need to take care of those that need to be taken care of. But we also can't be just taking care of for the sake of, of just handing away and handing away and never expecting them to change who they are. Because their problem is also a love of money. And it would be better for us to teach them and walk with them in figuring out how to handle money than simply just continuing to give it away and give it away and give it away. The need at that point is to break an idol, not to provide their financial means. But in the same token, we can't be willing to be so tight-fist to our pennies. We aren't willing to open them up and to meet needs where we see them. Jesus has called us to so much more than that. In fact, he just calls us to himself. So let's come to him. Let's come and see because he gets us. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, we thank you so much for your good and gracious work. How you continue to see us even in the midst of both our financial struggles and our financial ability. You've called us to more. You've called us to yourself. And so let's see you for who you are, Lord. Because ultimately, that's the only thing that matters, is you. We love you, Jesus.
We love you. Come to us in this time as we prepare our hearts for your table as we eat and break bread together. Amen.